Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Is this loud enough? Excellent. My name's Alex. Um, we're we're going to be having a look at both Isaiah 40 and the Mark chapter 1 passage today. There's Bibles in many of the, the pews, and most of them, so if you... I haven't got slides again, so um, if you'd like to follow along, you can. I might flip back to the slides of Isaiah 40 when we get to that point, but I'll tell you when you're uh, Let me pray for us as we begin. Sovereign Lord, you know that we are like grass, temporary and weak, and so you deal gently with us, speaking words of hope and light to us. We thank you that your word endures forever, and Lord, we ask that your word would enter us now and transform us by your spirit. Amen. Well, Christmas is often a time of year when we get to see a family and friends we might not have seen for a really long time, perhaps uh, even since last Christmas or even further back than that. Sometimes this can be really hard and, and something we dread, but it's, at its best, it can be a joyful reunion. Perhaps in the next few weeks, you'll have the experience of going to the airport to pick up a loved one because they've returned for Christmas. Or you'll catch a plane somewhere and be greeted at the airport. When I moved back from the UK after two and a half years living overseas, I remember that moment after getting off the plane as I came through the arrival doors at Sydney Airport. And I strained to see through the crowd for that first glimpse of well-known faces. And then that moment when I saw them and they saw me, the, the dawning recognition, the shouts of greeting and the joy at coming home. We can get that kind of feeling as well when we come towards the end of a long journey, hoping the next bend in the road will mark our arrival at our destination. Standing on the deck of a ferry or a boat and straining for the first glimpse of land on the very edge of the horizon. In a way, that's a lot like what we do during Advent. Advent marks the four weeks in the lead up to Christmas, as we've been talking about, and it's a time that invites us to prepare for Jesus' coming. His first coming as a Palestinian baby in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, and also his second coming when he will come in the clouds with great power and glory, as we looked at in Mark chapter 13 last week. And so during Advent, we strain to see what's to come, that tiny glimpse of land on the horizon, that dawning recognition as we see a loved one's face for the first time after a long absence. We're looking forward to a destination that we only have glimpses of at present, the return of Jesus when he will bring in the fullness of God's kingdom. We're looking for the king, and in today's New Testament passage, we meet a man who was intently looking for the king. Although the Gospels are all about Jesus, one of the first people we meet in Mark's Gospel is John the Baptist. In Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, an Old Testament quote is used to introduce him. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
It's a pretty remarkable introduction for John, packed full of Old Testament expectation, which we'll come back to in a moment. Uh, but let's start by looking at the man himself. So verse 4 goes on, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So John the Baptist comes onto the scene quite suddenly here in Mark, uh, not like in Luke's Gospel where we get the whole kind of story surrounding his birth. And John's ministry takes place in the wilderness, that vast barren wasteland around Judah, scorched by wind and heat, so a little like Sydney yesterday. And he seems a, a bit of an unusual man. He's dressed in a shaggy, smelly robe made of camel's hair, and he subsists off insects and honey from wild bees. It's kind of like the self-sufficient foraging lifestyle taken to the extreme. But despite all this, or maybe because of it, his preaching draws the crowds in. He proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and in response to his message, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of, Jude, of Jerusalem go out to him in the desert. He's wildly popular. And these large crowds confess their sins and are baptised by him in the Jordan River. From the other gospel accounts, we find out he's attracting all sorts, from tax collectors to soldiers, and even the priests and Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, go out to see what's happening in the desert. And as we understand more of the Old Testament background, we can start to see why John had such a following. For the crowds who went out to see John in the wilderness, his appearance and behaviour were a lot like the Jewish prophets of old. Elijah, perhaps the greatest Old Testament prophet, wore a shaggy coat made of goat's hair. And he also spent significant periods of time living in the wilderness, living off God's provision. Uh, Elijah was actually fed by ravens miraculously bringing him food. And John's location near the Jordan River was also closely associated with Elijah because this was where Elijah was miraculously taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And just like Elijah and the other Old Testament prophets, John preaches a message of repentance. From the earliest days of Israel's history when God rescued them from, from Egypt and protected them on their journey through the wilderness to the Promised Land, God's people had rebelled against him as their king. They rejected God's love and refused to obey his good laws, sinning against one another. And so God sent prophets to his people, messengers who announced God's steadfast kindness towards Israel, who pointed out the nation's sin and warned them of the inevitable punishment that would come if they continued to turn away from God. And they pleaded with Israel to repent, to turn from their rebellious way of living and look back to God. They were voices calling out in the wilderness of Israel's sin. 
And by and large, God's people in the Old Testament did not listen to the prophets, and they didn't look to God as their king. But now, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem hear John the Baptist's call to repent, and they recognise him as one of God's messengers. In fact, they wonder if he is the great prophet, Elijah. The people are looking for a leader, a king, and they wonder if John could be part of the king's coming. Their expectations of John are just sky high. Mark, the author of the gospel, also sets our expectations of John the Baptist sky high. After introducing that prophecy from Isaiah in verse 2, Mark gives a quote which actually comes from three different Old Testament passages. So the first part, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Uh, This part is actually a mashup of two different Old Testament sources. One of those sources is Exodus, in which God promised to send an angel messenger ahead of the nation of Israel to guide them to the promised land the place God had prepared for his people and where he would shower them with his blessings. The other passage referred to is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which we looked at only a few weeks ago as a church. And in that Malachi passage, God responded to his people's rejection of him by warning them that he will send a messenger to them who will prepare the way for the Lord, an event that will bring judgment. And a chapter later in Malachi, this messenger is identified as Elijah. And so in the few hundred years between Malachi and John the Baptist, the Jewish people had built a whole raft of expectations about the coming of Elijah, this messenger from the Lord. Many faithful Jews believed that Elijah would return, marking the beginning of God's kingdom on earth the return of God the King. So the weight of Jewish hope and expectation was huge. By using this combination of passages and applying them to John the Baptist, Mark, the Gospel writer, is saying something truly remarkable. John isn't just a good man with a message from God. John has been sent in the footsteps of Elijah. to to point God's people towards the arrival of the king. Well, the second part of the prophecy that Mark refers to adds even more Old Testament weight to John's person and message. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So it's from our other Bible reading in Isaiah 40, which is a message of comfort to Israel as they experience the punishment for their rebellion. Jackie, could you go to Isaiah 40, verse 1? Back, probably two slides. Yeah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. So God's people had suffered greatly because of their sin, but now the Lord Almighty promises to be merciful to them. He promises to return to them, this time not just in judgment, but for their good. Verse 3, next slide. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Israel has been suffering in the wilderness, separated from God. But now a straight, smooth highway will be laid down, much more rapidly and successfully than West Connects. Even mountains and valleys won't be an obstacle. The way will be made flat and easy so that God can be with his, with his people. All those who are looking for the arrival of the king will see him. God's glory will be revealed to everyone. And multiple times in this Isaiah passage, we hear a voice. In verse 3, there's a voice of one calling. In verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And in verse 9, those who bring good news are told, lift up your voices with a shout. So it's not clear in any of these cases who the voice belongs to, but it's a messenger of some sort, probably multiple messengers, who are sent by God to announce the arrival of his salvation to Israel, to point God's people to the arrival of their king. You who bring good news to Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have none. So these messengers bring good news that the Lord is coming with power and in gentleness. And this is good news that should be proclaimed to all of Zion, all of Jerusalem, like in Mark's Gospel, to the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, just like John the Baptist is doing. So in Isaiah, the messengers are commanded to proclaim the good news of God's coming salvation. And in Mark, John proclaims the good news of God's coming salvation in Jesus. Mark chapter 1 begins the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So although the bulk of our passage from Mark chapter 1 is about John the Baptist, the emphasis isn't really on John. John himself, he points this out. He says in verse 7, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. When I was a kid, I loved going to the movies, getting popcorn, maybe a soft drink, if I couldn't convince my parents, and settling down in those big, plush seats in a dark cinema for a couple of hours of entertainment. And of course, half the thrill of going to the movies was the trailers. Not the ads right at the beginning, you could miss those, but you always wanted to be there in time to see the trailers for movies that were coming out soon. Those two-minute cuts of some of the most exciting and tantalising bits of a movie that left you desperately wanting more. So John is the equivalent of a movie trailer. 
he announces the good news that the king is coming, raising the excitement of the Jewish people and leaving them wanting more. And for us who are reading Mark's gospel today, the feeling is the same. God's salvation is coming. But John isn't the main event. He's not the feature film. The main event is the one who comes after him. The one who is actually introduced before him at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus is the Messiah, which is an Aramaic term meaning a king. The promised king who all faithful Jews were looking for. And he's the son of God. The perfect fullness of the father, the sovereign Lord made human from Isaiah 40. This is the one who John was preparing for. Jesus is the one who Isaiah prophesied about, bringing God's salvation with power and tenderness. The one whose arm is upraised with power and whose arms gently cradle the weak against his heart. So John's baptism was a beautiful thing. The Israelite nation in the Old Testament had rebelled against God for most of their history. But here in Mark's Gospel, John prepares faithful Jewish people for the Lord's coming with a baptism of repentance, a washing in river water that symbolised Israel turning away from their past rebellion and turning towards God as their king. For us as well, this is part of what preparing our hearts during Advent looks like. Searching our hearts for ways that we've rebelled against God and repenting, turning our whole lives towards Jesus. Like ancient Israel, we also symbolically need this baptism of repentance as we look for the coming of the King. But John's baptism was only the trailer, not the main event. Jesus' baptism is even better than John's because Jesus baptises with the Holy Spirit. Since only God can give his spirit, it's further evidence that Jesus is the one promised in Isaiah 40, the sovereign Lord coming with gentleness and power. And Jesus' baptism is better because his is a baptism of salvation, which washes people clean from sin and shame and gives new life. And this isn't just good news for the towns of Judah and all of Jerusalem, it's good news for the whole world. In Jesus, the promises made to Israel in Isaiah 40 are extended to all people. So we're invited to look for the coming of God's salvation for the arrival of the king. Of course, this isn't the end of the story. This is just the beginning. The beginning of the good news that John the Baptist proclaimed in the wilderness. It's good news that was proclaimed for thousands of years before John, and it's proclaimed to us as well. The good news that God's salvation has come, that God himself has come in Jesus. As we spend this time during Advent looking forward to Christmas, more importantly, we're looking for the return of our Lord Jesus, who will come with total power and loving gentleness for the sheep of his flock. 
See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Well, our next song is going to give us a little more time to meditate uh, on our Lord, on who Jesus is. It's about the King we're looking forward to during Advent.